0: Good. My name is. Um, listen to the voice, right? Don't look at the face. It's the first time in a year with no beard. I get it. It's uh, a little different. Is there any? Okay. I was expecting some, some uh, not so flattering pictures up on the screen this morning, um, but uh, and there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I had that coming, I guess. <laughs> now, my name is Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, we welcome you here if you're new or if you're visiting. Um, we're going to jump right in this morning. Um, uh, poll of the audience. How many people have read or heard of this book here by Corey Ten Boom called The Hiding Place? Raise your hands high so I, so I know. So you Okay, so you've heard of it. How about if you've read it? Hands raised. Oh, awesome. Okay. So um, the, the Hiding Place is a fantastic, fantastic book. Um, Corey Tenboom uh, is a Dutch woman who grew up in the Dutch Reformed Church, was a Christian, uh, her whole family was a Christian, or were Christians. Her father owned a watch shop. And they um, they lived in the same building as the watch shop during uh, the time of World War II. And as um, and as uh, the Nazi regime was coursing through all of Europe, um, the Ten Boom family took it on as one of their personal missions to help protect their Jewish neighbors, those who were around them that were suffering under persecution from a Nazi regime, and they would create places within their home, literally, to hide them. And so the story, um, as it goes, is, was named uh, The Hiding Place. Fantastic, fantastic book. If you haven't read it, really, really recommend um, that you do. Um, but uh, in, in reading the book, Corey says, uh, she says this about like the whole premise of the hiding place. There's like a, a dual story, a, uh, a dual narrative in the book. The first is the actual story of her family's like quest to save and protect and care for Jewish people um, during the Nazi regime. But it was, it's also a story about the character and nature of God. And she bases most of what she says off of this one verse in Psalm 119, the largest chapter in the largest book of the Bible, Psalm 119, 114, which says, you, God, are my hiding place, my shield. I have put my hope in your word. That not only were the ten booms providing for people in moments of need a physical place to hide. But that God in his sovereignty, in his strength, in his grace, in his mercy is a place for us to hide. Is a place that we can find refuge is a place that is a like a uh, the psalmist also says that that God um, that God is like the cleft of a rock during a heavy storm. The cleft is like an overhang, right? That we find refuge during the storm underneath the rock. If I we we don't we don't make a habit out of titling sermons here, but if I had to title a sermon this morning, I would say uh, the title of this sermon is. The hiding place. And I would say that while um, each of us have our own idea of what it means to be safe. And where we run when we want to hide. That there is really only one safe place to hide. There's There's only one place that we can go. That provides us a true cleft ...of rock over top of us. So, um, I'm going to be in a a few places of Scripture um, this morning... ...that uh, tries to um, illustrate or exemplify uh, the character and nature of God... ...that Corey knew all about in Psalm 19. Our God is a hiding place. So, if you open right... ...you don't got to go far today, right? Uh, We're going into Genesis... And not even very far into Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there should be one. in. Um, there's a couple in each seat. We'll have it on the screen. You can also use an app if you have it. Um, if you don't know, we, we have an app here, um, the Conduit Ministries app. It's free on Google Play. Um, or if you have a good phone, uh, the iOS store. Um, and, and you can just go there and find it. Uh, Conduit Ministries, it's free, there's a Bible on there, Uh, jump on, go to Genesis chapter 3 with me, and uh, you, uh, most people will immediately uh, recognize the story here, Uh, and we're not going to read the whole thing, and we're not going to go into a great bit of detail about it, but I want to draw your attention uh, to Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 6, for our purposes this morning, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now, there are, uh, oh my gosh, are there questions about this story? And um, uh, first is kind of like the ironic question: Is like, did Adam really believe he could hide? Did Eve really believe that somehow hiding in the bushes, right, that they were that they were going to elude the Lord who was searching for them? Um, but the second is this: is really what what actually made them hide? What was like the what was the driving and factor that that caused them to go from a place of like freedom and openness in a place where, where where God had designed it for them and given it to them and and they had they had nothing of want there was there was nothing that they needed they were they were free in every way shape and form but now they found it necessary to ...conceal themselves from the very one that had given it to them. What made them do this? There's an interesting little comment here uh, in verse 7. After they ate the fruit, right? It's like they, they both had this um, eye-opening moment of who they were. Of, of what their appearance was. It says then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized that they were naked. That, that some, some form of scale had come off their eyes and they were seeing each other and they were seeing themselves in a different way than they had ever seen themselves before. And when God asked them, In verse 10, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And this is so interesting. God says, verse 11, who told you that you were naked? Who told you that you were naked? Now, this seems like a funny question, right? Well, like, Lord... Ain't got no clothes on, right? So it's not like I gotta know, like no one's got to tell me that I be naked. I'm just naked. And I think that what the the gist of the question is from the Lord here, right? Was not who gave you the information that you were that you are naked. But 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 more like this, basically God was saying here, who told you that you were naked? Basically, God said here, like, look, look. I never told you that about yourself. I I never told you you were naked. I never declared that about you. I never gave you that identity. I didn't let you in on that aspect of your, like, personhood, your appearance. Why? Listen, why are you believing something about yourself that I never said about you. I never told you you were naked. Why are you ashamed? Why are you hiding? That's not what I said. That's not who I made you to be. That's not who you are. You see, we can kind of infer... ...and kind of learn throughout the story... ...and kind of know from our own personal experience... ...of living this life, right? Of having our own Adam and Eve moments... ...that what Adam and Eve were feeling in that moment was shame. They couldn't look at themselves. And when they did look at themselves... They saw themselves through sinful eyes rather than through the identity that God had given them. They were feeling shame. See, here's the reality um, of what happened with Adam and Eve. What happens with us is that when we choose not to trust God, we believe things that aren't ...of God. Adam and Eve... ...chose... ...to not trust... ...that everything else... ...that the Lord had given them... ...was good enough. They choose... ...they uh, they chose to trust... ...in their own wisdom... ...they trusted in their own... ...choice... ...to make their own choice... ...and as soon... ...as they trusted... ...in something other... ...than God's word for them... And to them, they immediately began to believe things that weren't from him. I'm shameful. I should hide. I need to separate myself from God. Why are you hiding? God says. Why do you think that you must hide from me? Have this terrible 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 disease that infects Christianity it infects the heart of those who follow Jesus and it is a it is a tool and a like twisting knife of the enemy to um, ...deceive us into thinking we are something that we are not. We have this epic um, battle... ...between a biblical concept called guilt... ...and an unbiblical concept called shame. What is the difference between guilt... ...and shame... And why is it important? Why is it important that we come to understand what it, what the difference between what it means to be guilty of something and what it means to live in shame about something? You see, guilt guilt is uh, guilt is natural. guilt Guilt is a um, it uh, it is a is it a it's a natural outcome or 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 consciousness. An objective reality. I made a mistake. I am guilty of X. I am guilty of Y. Guilt. It's objective. It's definable. It's real. Right? In contrast is this idea of shame. Shame as a, a tool from the enemy, a, a subjective feeling that says, not I made a mistake, but rather I am a mistake. Shame shame focuses not on what I have done, but but who I believe I am. Shame, it is a it is the, the painful emotion that is caused. By a consciousness of guilt, failure, or impropriety that often results in this paralyzing conviction or belief that I am worthless, that I am of no value to others and God, that I am unacceptable, and that I am altogether deserving of disdain or rejection. Shame comes shame comes as guilt is not properly dealt with shame comes when guilt is allowed to poison our souls when it is not washed away by the blood of repentance guilt is a tool uh, shame is a tool that the enemy uses To twist our minds into thinking that it is is us that is disdainful to God. And that we must hide. Shame makes us hide. And shame makes us conceal that which is true. We see that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 10. He answered, I heard you in the garden... And I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. Got to get out of here. I got to cover up. I got to make sure no one sees at all. Listen. Shame causes us to hide in the midst of actions that are guilty, but but what I want you to hear this morning, and what I want you to know this morning, is that um, hiding is not the problem. When when we have when we have guilt, hiding is not the problem. When we when we when there's an objective reality of Cameron made a mistake. The act of hiding is not what leads us into guilt, or into shame. It's when we choose to hide in the wrong place, that guilt moves to shame. It's when we, when we choose to hide in the, in the facades of life, that shame does its damage. I'm okay you're okay everything's okay right i i'm going to like i'm i'm going to throw myself into my work right i'm going to i'm going to throw myself i'm going to throw myself into my family like right? i'm going to throw myself into my hobbies right I, I i throw myself into my marriage i throw myself into parenting i i i throw myself into success and if you just see i mean just look everything everything is great right everything Every everything that you see, right? What can you What can you point out that you would have um, a problem with? And we run and we hide behind these facades that we know are just like a house of cards. That one more breeze will make the whole house come tumbling down before all of our shame is exposed before the whole world. listen rather rather than hiding in the facades of life when we are guilty our only escape our only hiding place is in and with the one who covers over our shame When we are guilty, our, our hiding place, the, the cleft of rock that we take refuge underneath, that we hide in, is, is Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not a, not a facade of life that we put up, but it is in him. Uh, the psalmist says in more than a few places, I want to note a few here psalm, 27 verse five. The psalmist says, "For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Psalm Psalm 40 verse 2, He, it is he who lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and the mire. He set my feet on a rock, and gave me a firm place to stand. If you must run, if you must hide, if you must flee, flee to the one who promises you real refuge. Refuge is only found in one place. You cannot run into your own life fast enough or far enough to escape guilt. The only place you can go where you are safe. The only place you can go where there is refuge is to God and God alone. What happens with Adam and Eve? What happened when they were finally, their shame, their guilt, their guilt was exposed. Their shame was exposed before them, right? And God God approaches them. Are Are there consequences? Well, there are certainly consequences to their guilt, right? God goes through this long list ...of consequences um, from verse 12 in chapter 3... ...all the way through uh, verse 19. Both for Eve and for Adam... ...and for all of their descendants... ...there were consequences. For for what they had done. For the choice that they had made. But that wasn't the end of the story. Because listen... Um, ...we... We we are a consequence type of people. That's usually where the story ends for us, right? Is is, um, Cameron does X, and so Y happens, it's the consequence, and then the story is over. The story ends with the consequence, right? But the story doesn't end with the consequence for God and Adam and Eve here in the garden. It doesn't end in verse 19. It doesn't end in verse 20. Because what exists is verse 21. A small little scripture that we speed over. No, thanks a lot, Adam and Eve. You get everything that you deserve. Because the word says this. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife. And he clothed them. God's kind of uh, response certainly was to communicate the length and width and breadth and height of the consequences of their choices. But ultimately, what happens in verse 21 communicates the same thing about the character and nature of God that the consequences do is that, is that if anything, right? When our shame is exposed before God, God makes a beeline to cover it. That there is no length to which God will not go to take our exposed shame and cover it over. Now, what the story doesn't say here in verse twenty-one, it just simply says that God took skin and covered their nakedness. The thing that brought them shame in that, morning, in that moment, God took it and He covered it. But, but uh, I mean, like, it's kind of a like a hypothetical or rhetorical question. But like, where did God get the skin? Where does God get the skin here? Right? right certainly, like, snap fingers, skin. Right? No. It's really apparent here that, that the skin came from somewhere. Skin comes from something living. And so, and so in order for their shame to be covered over, right, something had to die. There had to be some kind of sacrifice made, right? God had to take something that was previously living, right, kill it take the skin and use it to cover the shame of Adam and Eve it was not without eternal consequence it was not without grace to God he then had to use a part of his creation right it was a it was a a, a something had to die there had to be blood there had to be sacrifice the skin had to come from one thing so that it could cover over the shame of another thing picking up what I'm putting down here right God has made every provision for you to escape the poison and damage of shame through Jesus Christ's death on the cross. A sacrifice had to be made, something had to be given. And in that moment of shame and in that moment of nakedness where we stand before the Lord not knowing what to say, not having an excuse for the way that we look or for what we've done, God says, hold the phone. My son will cover your shame. My son will cover your nakedness. My son will cover your fear. My son will cover everything that made you run. Everything that made you hide. Everything that made you think that I didn't want to be around you. Everything that you see in you. Right, My son covers over it. You are no longer naked. But now you are clothed in the righteousness of of Jesus Christ. Of course, this is this is the New Testament theme. Jesus perfect mediator, great high priest, atoning sacrifice, perfectly sufficient in every way, shape and form. For the forgiveness of our sins. But the writer of Hebrews has all kinds of things to say. About the perfection of the sacrifice that was Jesus Christ. For the covering of our shame. He says in Hebrews chapter 9. uh, Verse 14. He says how much more then. Will the blood of Christ. Who through the eternal Holy Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciousness, our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the, the, the unblemished lamb of God who cleanses our consciences from acts that lead to death so that now we may be free to serve the Lord there's two things about shame this morning that I want you to get it's these number one the key to breaking the power of of pride fueled shame is the vastly superior power of humility filled faith in the work, promises, and person of Jesus Christ. Jesus pronounces us shameless and promises that His grace. In the midst of the mountain of shame that we stand on is more than perfectly sufficient for our weakness. There is not some epic battle that goes on. There is not some eternal struggle between the power of shame that drives us into isolation and away from the presence of God and God, right? Right? It's it's not as if grace is involved in this epic battle of of proportions where it, it must somehow, some way, find a way to defeat all of the shame and guilt that we have piled upon ourselves, right? There's almost this sense that when Jesus says this to Paul, right? My grace is sufficient for you my power is made perfect in weakness it's that it was like bring it on bring bring that there, there is n- there is no mountain of guilt there is no mountain of shame my my grace does not struggle to cover over the shame that you intend to hide it's not it's not difficult for me it's not an epic struggle it's like, this my power is made perfect in your weakness. The key to breaking the power of pride-fueled shame is the superior power of humility-filled-filled faith in the work, promises. And person of Jesus Christ. Jesus pronounces us shameless. And promises that his grace is abundantly and exceedingly and overwhelmingly sufficient. In the midst of our weaknesses. Number two is this. We win the war on shame when we remember the holding power of God's love in Jesus Christ. Not, not a story I have told. I don't think anyone because I was kind of embarrassed to tell it. Um, uh, a few weeks ago, the week before I went on vacation, I was putting some crown molding on um, uh, some kitchen cabinets. And sometimes when I do that, I use um, a little uh, super glue, some, like, industrial-strength super glue, so it bonds the joint tight right away, right? Super tight right away. And in the midst of uh, using super glue to put this joint together and, like, trying to line it up and get it all perfect, I, like, was taking the two pieces of crown, and I, I pushed them together, and you know what happened, right? a little bit of super glue, squeezed out of the front of the joint, right, and got in between my thumbs, and as I was pushing everything together, I went to go let go, and I was like this. And, and um, you know, you think that, well, I mean, you just pull your thumbs apart, right? I mean, it's super glue. It's not like, but of course, um, I, I bought the good stuff, right? So I still don't quite have any thumbprints right but I eventually got my thumbs apart right and just out of curiosity I picked up um I picked up the uh the bottle to see like I want to know like all right they've, they've got to have some marketing on this bottle about like the the like I'm sure that in the marketing Material, they took like this 50 pound weight and they super glued it to a wall and they like look at the holding power of the super glue right? it, it sticks it right on the wall and as I was thinking as I was thinking about this I was like we so vastly underestimate the holding power of God's love We so vastly underestimate the superior strength of God's love to hold us tight to Him even when the circumstances seem like there's no way this isn't going to pull us apart. How? How could I possibly... How could I possibly be loved by God? How could he possibly still see me the same way? How could could he possibly? We win the war on shame when we remember the holding power of God's love for us in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said famously in Romans chapter 8, he said this, who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us? Shall trouble? Shall hardship? Shall persecution or famine or nakedness or sword? No. No, in, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Listen, the holding power of God's love, right? The holding power of God's love. For I am convinced, Paul says, that neither death nor life, neither, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul says universally, without question, without exception, that there is nothing that separates us from the holding power of God's love. That when God has you, God has you. Listen, miracle has happened in our midst this morning because I'm done with my sermon like 20 minutes early. Um, so that earns me at least like five or six more long sermons before you keep emailing me about it, all right? Um, but that's the end of the sermon, but it's not the end of the sermon, okay? I'm, I got come down here. Within the Christian faith, we celebrate communion. I mean, it's known by a lot of names. It's known by the the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, um, uh, communion, uh, the Great Sacrament. Um, you can choose your name. You can choose your you can choose your faith tradition, right? Um, I don't. Uh, we don't require that you be a part of any any specific or individual faith tradition um, in order to celebrate communion, to celebrate the Lord's Supper uh, with us. What we do want is for you to understand, at least in as much as anyone understands, what it is, that Jesus instituted with his disciples on the night that he was betrayed and has given to us as a gift to experience in some ways a tangible example of his grace. I've I've studied um, theology for really the better part of my life now. And there are as many um, theological theories on the efficacy and purpose of the bread and the cup, as there are types of bread that you could possibly eat. Uh, in some circles, this is this act, communion, is called um, a great mystery. Because somehow, in in some ways, when we approach two Things that almost everyone has maybe in their cupboards or in their fridge bread and juice or wine and the loaf we experience in some way the power the majesty the sacrifice of Jesus it is a great mystery a great mystery offered to us by faith. Here's what I believe about communion this morning. Is that shame shame causes brokenness. It fractures who we are. It fractures who we believe um, who we believe God is. It fractures the way that we believe that God sees us. And it is a great mystery. A eternal and heavenly uh, mystery that the thing that broke Jesus is the thing that puts us Back together. That the moment of Jesus' brokenness is the moment of our wholeness. That that, that when in our brokenness and in our shame we choose to run, not into a facade of life, but when we choose to run headlong into the moment of Jesus' brokenness is when we find wholeness. A great mystery of God. A great grace of God. A great gift of God. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he met with his disciples in an upper room and he took a loaf of bread and he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat all of you. This is my body which has been given to you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took a cup. And he gave thanks to his heavenly father for the cup. And then he gave the cup to his disciples. And he said, take and drink of this cup, all of you. This is my blood which has been poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this and do it often in remembrance of me. And so we do come to the table on these mornings in remembrance of what Jesus Christ has done. Gifts are given and gifts are meant to be received. And in this moment, Jesus offers to you the brokenness of his body, the shedding of his blood, so that your brokenness may be overwhelmed and brought to wholeness. That your shame may be covered up by the sacrifice of his Son. That you may walk around not in the nakedness of your sin, but in the fullness of the righteousness of Jesus. I said before you don't need to be a part of this church you don't need to be a part of any church to take communion with you need only to believe and receive in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins to come and to receive what Christ has offered you in his body, in his blood, on the cross. We're gonna um, invite the the um, you know the worship team. They serve us all the time, right? Every week they serve us, and they never get communion, right? And it's always like how do you know how do you serve communion? So we're gonna invite them. Uh, Katie's gonna come and serve with me this morning. And we're going to invite the worship team uh, to come up as well um, to receive communion. So the way we take communion here is uh, by um, intinction. That's just like a funny word to, like, rip and dip, all right? Uh, uh, Sorry. Sorry, sorry, Lord, about that one. Um, Take a piece of the bread. You can dip it in the cup, and you can take it... um, Uh, You can take it at that time. Come through the center aisles. uh, Go back to your seat through the outside aisles. Um, uh, The altar is open if you would like to stay and pray. Um, I can pray with you um, afterwards if we're all all finished. And um, let me pray for us now as Katie and the worship team come forward. Heavenly Father, it it is in your grace. It is in your gift that you have given us your Son. You have offered us, Lord, what we could not provide for ourselves. A moment where. A moment where our shame is covered. Where our righteousness becomes the righteousness of Jesus. Lord, we don't proclaim to fully understand the length or depth or height of the gift that you have offered to us, Lord, but we receive it this morning. In faith that what you say is true. That all who come to call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Cover our shame. Take away our guilt. In Jesus' name, amen.